Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. We're going to be discussing the Energiewende, the German transition to, uh, to clean energy. My guest is Dr. Gunther Bachmann, a former director of the German Council for Sustainable Development, an advisory body that works closely with the business world to promote green standards and reports to the German federal government. He's also the author of The Hour of Politics, an essay about sustainability, utopias, and creative spaces. Welcome to Energy Talks, Dr. Bachmann. Welcome to Vancouver. A quick note for listeners. We normally don't edit these conversations, but in this case, the most interesting discussion occurred during the last 10 minutes. We decided to move that section to the beginning, so please enjoy. My takeaway from your comments, Gunter, is that energy transitions are really difficult. This is structural change we're talking about, and economic structures, social structures, political structures, policy structures don't change without a lot of hard work, failure sometimes, and and difficulties for parts of the, the community. But it's important in this case, because this is a long-term structural change, to grapple with it early. Don't put it off, grapple with it early. Put in place policies like Germany has where you're dealing with the social side of things, the just transition, the workers, and, and be prepared to do that hard work down in the trenches and, and to fix problems when they arise and, and understand that this is not just a simple flick the switch and we're going we're gonna to have you know, 100% renewable energy and it's all easy peasy because it's not. Is that mm -hmm. a fair takeaway from what you just were describing? Yeah, I would, I would like to add, um, first of all, introduce some, some high ambitious targets and goals uh, but because that is what people need they need some kind of orientation they need you know um, down in the trenches they need to see the, the light and the light is expressed by some targets timetables and step um, to 2030 2040 what have you that is important and to pass this not only as an executive order but to run it through the parliament. That is another, I think, big takeaway. Um, and I say this because we did it in a different way before and it was not successful. We learned it the hard way. And then uh, invest into science and technology. And while you do invest into science and technology, that means invest in people, um, invest also in the arts. In, in the cultural framework. Yeah, it's, it looks, <laughs> you're surprised, but at the best money spent is on technology, in innovation and the arts. Because young people at school, at university, if you can attract their attention by investing into universities and, and, and science, you get the bright minds on the job, on this issue. And then you need to have a translation between high stake innovation and technology and what matters for the people. And the best you can do this is not with politics. I mean, generally spoken, about it with, with the arts, with movie pictures, what have you. And that is um, my takeaway. 
to make transformation a cultural issue and not only a technol technological or money issue. I find that fascinating, and I'll, I'll tell you why, Gunter. Within Canada, uh, I am frequently debating and, and arguing for a change in narrative. So the way we think about and talk about energy, the stories we tell about energy, and very often within the energy sector and the policymakers, they push back and say, no, we need plans. It's a pl and, I, and I argue, I guess would be consistent with what you're saying, is that you need to get into the realm of the, you need to change the way people conceive of, of energy and, and where they're going, that vision of what the future will look like. And when they buy into that and they change the narrative, then, the, then you need plans because then you need to implement plans to implement the new vision. And we've kind of got it in Canada. I think we've kind of got it backwards. And mm. would that be a, a fair comment that it, it's the vision, the, the thinking, the, the, the narrative, the talking that needs to come first? That's the better way to do it than to have the, the technological approach of plans and, and innovation and science and technology? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but still, um, going the way into visions and the big picture, um, you must be very careful not to be seen as the guy that should better go to the doctors, to the shrinks. So whenever I talk about the vision and I try to talk people into action towards this vision, I'm very careful being uh, meaningful and being concrete and um, so to say, um, have a link to what this means in real life of people. Um, so um, a plan, a vision, and then following up a plan um, is uh, according to Churchill, a plan is useless, except for having no plan at all. So. And fair and fair enough. Uh, and I think that having a vision in t of uh, an electric future, uh, a low emission future, a low carbon future, is much easier in 2020 than it would have been in 2010 in Germany. Because now you can point to say, you know, fall, you know, wind and solar costs are 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 so low. Battery storage is uh, becoming very inexpensive and the technology is improved. I mean, the, the technology changes the way, changes your narrative. It changes your storytelling. It allows people to plug into what you're saying because you're not that crazy guy that needs a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You're that guy who said, look, maybe you do, you know, they see electric vehicles driving around their neighborhood and on the, the car dealer lots and they can now go, they can, connect it to their experience, their daily experience, which was more, much more difficult a decade ago, I think. Yeah, I agree. In principle, it's the yes, we can mentality and, and narrative. But um, on the other hand side, we should never forget that the problems, climate change, biodiversity loss, the oceans, the plastics, um, the problems are still faster than the solutions it's still a runaway game. Um, and um, the point here is that, well, all nations in the world agreed on the Paris, Paris Agreement. All nations in the world agreed, except one, um, on the sustainable development goals. 
this is, is good framework. I mean, it's the best framework in multilateral politics that we ever had, except maybe for the um, Declaration of Human Rights. But it's, it's the same level. And, and you look into what is delivered so far, it's, I mean, it's not nothing, but it's far too less and you're far too slow. So that is why I'm, I'm, I'm saying that um, food waste uh, problems and equity now with COVID-19 uh, recovery problems, where there's a setback of about maybe for, for a couple of years of, of 10 years or so. We see illegal logging rising up. We see poaching rising because um, the tourism money is not in the countries that have these nat wonderful natural parks and they can't pay the, the rangers. And so poaching and illegal logging comes up again. These kinds of problems we still have. And um, they are fierce. I mean, they are wicked problems. And what we now have in solutions, meaning technologies, works for a country like Germany. But the big transformation is to make it work for Africa and for Latin America. I mean, you in Canada, it's the same with us in Germany. We can afford to pay these or that subsidies. Others cannot. So that is what I mean. And, and I mean, climate change politics do only make sense if, if they work around the world and not only in our, I mean, Canada is a big country, Germany is a small country, but still on, on, the, on a larger scale, we are both small. And, and that is what, what I mean. Before I let you go, one last question. And I'm fond of quoting the German historian, Arnold Toynbee Jr., who talks about the rise and fall of civilizations over you know, millennia. And his argument is that leadership is the defining feature of whether the civilization rises again when it's confronted with challenge or whether it, it declines. Do we have the leadership globally in Germany to grapple with this issue and solve the problem and get us to where we need to go before we do irreparable damage that cannot be, that cannot be repaired? Uh, well, um, once I say that problems are run away, running away and solutions are too slow, of course, we do not, the answer to your question is, we do not have the leadership we need to have. The, um, Mr. Guterres, the UN Secretary um, General said that we now are facing a decade of delivery because we are not delivering so far. And that's a point in leadership. Um, but then I have to say that from my personal perspective and my personal experience that I had as a uh, working the Council for Sustainable Development, it's never leadership alone. It's always to trust in the people. A good leader would trust his or her people. And then with the trust comes expectation and motivation, also motivation to deliver and to put himself or herself on the line. And that is what is needed. Um, we still in the world, we have quite good leaders when it comes to innovation, when it comes to governance and policy making. And they come up with wonderful laws and pieces of legislation. Um, well, what they lack is the link and the trust 
to, um, to the uh, million people. And that is why the energy, the energy wende, energy wende in Germany, uh, is for a lot of people is seen as a people's project. And and that is that is a, a message that could be sold to other countries as well. Make it a people's project, as the SDGs are a people's project. Now. Uh, I know a little bit about energy Vinda, but uh, not that much. And I bet my listeners know even less. So why don't we start with an overview of energy Vinda? Okay. The term energy, energy Vinda, energy Vinda in German is an old one, actually. Um, it was first used by an NGO in the late 70s of last century. In late 70s. When we had an increase in nuclear power, uh, when we had these great battles on the um, meadow grounds in front of a couple of those um, nuclear power plants to be sited at that moment, when German industry still dreamed the dream of a plutonium cycle, in those days, an NGO working with uh, science-based data they popularized the term Energiewende. And what it meant at that time was a complete change in, um, of the energy system, but it was not yet a term that would include climate change. And the whole, you know, the, the realm of what we now know that we have to do when it comes to energy transformation. It was just um, plug out of nuclear energy. Over time, in the 80s, the 90s, we in Germany, we've, we faced a fierce battle between the, let's say, um, ecologically enlightened fraction in the society and those hard-nosed um, technological campaigners and enterprises that would go the direct way to the nuclear and brown and lignite coal power plants. In 2011, after the um, Fukushima accident, the Chancery decided to call in a group of people at, that had only eight weeks to advise the federal government on how to proceed with nuclear power plant. That was when the term Energiewende was popularized a second time and that time in a more political sense. And that is what we now understand as energy vendor, including um, climate change mitigation policies, including the phase out of nuclear power plant until 2022. Now, uh, Germany is generally considered to be a pioneer of this approach and the, the more aggressive climate policies and phasing out of coal and uh, lowering its greenhouse gas emissions. And I guess like most pioneers, most first movers, uh, it's had its fair share of difficulties that it's had to grapple with. And some of those I understand are that, I mean, this idea of phasing out nuclear while you're doing the transition has actually resulted in an increase in coal. That's where critics often come to uh, attack it because it's uh, supposed to lower emissions, but it's led to more coal. And I think uh, 
if I read correctly, even a, a bit of an increase in emissions. Have I got that correct? Well, we knew at the beginning that the phase out of nuclear um, must not compromise the climate goals. And as far as I know, it did not compromise the climate goals. But we knew also that climate goals, the targets that we had and still have, they're hard to achieve. It's really hard stuff. So um, last year, the German government and society decided to phase out a huge chunk of the coal-fired power plants as well. And that, that, I mean, that is really stress for the system, but it's a good stress because it means innovation. It means um, huge investments into new technologies. And that is where the renewable energy comes in. We can only have this kind of transformation because we started 30 years ago. We started with um, garage type engineers putting together solar power plants. And once you put these, at that time, these panels on the energy system, you would have to pay like 60 euro cent per kilowatt hour in solar energy. We're now down to almost nothing. So that is the increase and the innovation, the scaling up of technologies that we are now proud to use uh, what we started earlier in full consciousness of the climate change transformation challenge. I've had other experts tell me that were it not for Germany's energy window and, you know, starting 30 years ago, um, paying the extra costs, subsidizing the development of that technology, we might not have the state of development we have today in solar panels and wind turbines. And it was all that hard work that was done at the beginning in Germany that kind of has, you know, primed the pump for advances we see today. Is that accurate from your point of view? From my point of view, it is accurate. Uh, we as Germans would not diplomatically, <laughs> would not press this point. <laughs> but actually, it, I think that's, that's the fact. Um, we, the German taxpayer and the energy bill payer, we subsidize international scaling up of, of, um, of solar power plants and wind power plants as well. Is there a recognition by Germans that investing in that kind of technology up front and you know, they have to pay a little more on taxes or maybe a lot more, maybe more on electricity prices, but subsidizing that innovation leads to a technological advantage for Germany and increases its economic competitiveness over the long term? There is not only a certain recognition, but it's a, I would say it's, politicians are in full recognition of this fact. If you look into hydrogen technology, it's exactly what we do. And we're talking hundreds of millions of taxpayers, um, euros that goes into this uh, technology. If you look into battery cells, we call it an industrial policy in, in German, the industry politique, to, um, for the state to invest in this technology together with industry, of course. Um, take the um, example of carbon capture and use or methane cracking. It's always the same. Um, and um, even in food system industries, people are used to invest in, into these new technologies, even taxpayers' money, 
and that comes with the general budget um, for of the Ministry for Science and Technology and Innovation. And we have uh, almost 3% of our national budget goes into science and innovation. Wow, that's a, uh, that's a very large percentage. I know it's nowhere near that in, in Canada. Um, let's talk about the, some of the reforms that had to take place. Now, for instance, I understand there was a debate around electricity market reform. And that's of interest to me because I see the same thing happening now in North America. You see the American utilities that are grappling with this idea of how to integrate more uh, renewables, wind and solar, but also to increase the amount of electrical generation and distribution because under because of climate policies, states and various, you know, they're, they're electrifying in order to reduce their, their emissions. Market reforms are important. It looks like Germany grappled with that early on. What's been the experience in Germany? Well, we have this um, law that stems from the late 90s on the feed-in tariff. You get paid when you feed in renewable energy into the grid. And this law has to be readjusted um, from time to time. That's what the current discussion in Germany is. Um, bring this law up to, up to date again. And we're discussing this in Parliament right now. So with this law and with other regulatory um, legislation that are regulating the grid, for instance, uh, we're trying to make this transformation happen. And it's a, it's a tricky thing because the increase in renewables is not the only benchmark. The integration of renewables into the system is another benchmark. So we have to build lines, transformation, transformation, uh, transmission lines. Um, and, and the question is how to deal with those fossil fuel powered power plants that, are, that will be taken out of the system in two years and three years. Um, they, they, nowadays, they remain in the, what we call the reserve and get paid for doing nothing. Um, only, you know, you have this basic energy flow um, and you need it from time to time because intermittent uh, renewables. And that kind of um, micro steering the system is what the energy vendor is meant to do. And that's um, something it's, it's expensive at, in the first glance, um, but then what comes out of it is a new um, innovative infrastructure built on renewable energy. Let's talk about coal for a moment because coal, uh, I mean, you know, over the last say five years that I've been hearing about Energy Vinda, uh, the, the, how difficult it is to phase out coal is often pointed to as a you know, weakness in these kinds of uh, climate uh, policy approaches. And Germany certainly seems to be struggling with coal, but it also appears that it, of late in the last year or two, it's kind of come to grips with that and, and figured out how it's going to phase out coal. Have I got that accurate? Yeah, we, we had at that time last year, we had a commission on how to deal with coal, how to phase out coal. It was uh, industry, politicians, NGO, whatever. So, and they decided um, to phase out coal until 2038. That was debated 
for the environmental NGOs, that's too long. For the capital market, that's too long because they want to invest fresh money. Um, and for industry, that was quite right. But for the politicians that are governing those parts of the country where this industry sits, the mining industry, it was quite right because the problem with the phasing out of coal is not coal. The problem with phasing out coal is people. People who have jobs, um, regional areas that are kind of monopolized by the coal mining industries. And for them to find alternatives to rebuild these old structured areas, um, that is the challenge. Um, so the challenge of phasing out, out coal is not coal, it's democracy. And you would no, not want those Rust Belt people vote into some right populist parties. So that, is, that was the German challenge. But I think now it's settled. This lot of money going in these areas, in these regions. And uh, I mean, 2038 seems long, but the major chunk of coal would be taken out by in the next couple of years. Um, and the rest would just stabilize the grid system. And for 2050 and for being climate neutral, 2038 is good enough. I find that fascinating, uh, Gunter, because you can see the Americans grappling with this. And, and in Canada, to a lesser extent, in Alberta, which is you know our Texas of Canada, uh, and the issue comes up, what do we do with the people and the communities that are, you know, have grown up around, around coal mining, and yeah. particularly in the U.S., because coal is, is collapsing and, and uh, coal companies are going bankrupt, and it seems like there's very little support for those communities, and they're just going to fade away and they'll have to grapple as best they can. If I understand this, you correctly, the Germans have taken a different approach and you put in place just transition policies so that those folks will get retraining or you know, have some other kind of industry to employ them. Is that accurate? Yeah, um, and um, in addition, we did it before with the rural area where we have these old industrial steel and, and, and coal industries. And that was completely, more or less, completely redone in the last 30 years. So there's, and the, from my personal perspective, the most important point is to take this challenge not as a technological challenge, nor as a purely economic challenge, but as a cultural challenge. Do you uh, make those people believe, um, let them have, let them be proud of what they achieved in the past. So they have, do not have to apologize for having worked coal. They have to be proud to have been in a position to introduce some top-notch technologies for coal. And, and from that on, uh, build the alternatives that would, in, Ger in the German case, come with hydrogen, uh, would come with all sorts of high-tech uh, high uh, high innovation. From, from your point of view, how successful has that policy worked? Because I know, you know, we reported energy media about the energy transition policies and experiences in various jurisdictions. So I'm quite familiar with what goes on in the U.S. and Canada. 
and it seems like that is probably one of the most difficult problems to grapple with for policymakers. And they're, frankly, it appears, you know, they're not doing a very good job in North America. And is, are there lessons that can be learned from, from Germany's experience? Because it seems like you've done, you're doing a, a much better job than we are. Yeah, I understand the question. I will be very open here. We are not yet there. It's, it's an ongoing struggle. And there are setbacks. There, is, there were regions where no industry will come and, and invest. So these, these kinds are problematic. Uh, but on the bright side of it, we now have the European Green Deal. So the Europe, and we're all together in Europe, these 27 states, we together will invest money into the transformation that is uh, earmarked with climate change or climate mitigation money. And that is new in, in history. We never did this before. Um, the commission was not allowed to interfere with national energy policies up to now. They are now allowed to do so. And there is a collective um, money to be spent. That will help the case in Slovakia, that will help the case in Poland, that will help the case in uh, maybe even in Hungary. I'm not sure, but I, I will hope so. Um, so it's, and it's not the German blueprint that we're passing out. It's just the way that, we, that to collectively we provide money and every nation, every region has to find its way into. But there is no doubt that by 2050, some, some idea of climate neutrality must be realized. Um, I would not go so far to say um, or to sell uh, the German experience as a result for, for everyone. Um, because we are not there, uh, we do have problems. We do have opposition in the regions. Um, um, but on the other hand side, um, I would say as far as we got so far, um, we have a good chance to, you know, to, to bring it to a good end. Gunther, thank you very much for this. I really appreciate it. I thought we were going to have a conversation about technology and about policy, and it turned out we had a very insightful conversation about, about the human side of climate, uh, you know, the energy transition and climate policy and what's going on in, in Germany. Thank you very much for this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for calling me up. Thank you. Bye-bye.